I'm not a daredevil, but I like to do fun and exciting things. Like I love riding motorcycles. Uh, I snowboard. Um, I like I like snow machines, snowmobiles. I, I like those 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 kind of things. I I water ski. In fact, I've even water skied over an alligator. Like I hit an alligator in a river. Now I thought the alligator was going to duck under the water before I got there. Uh, if I'd have known I was going to be hitting the alligator, I might not have done it. But the alligator didn't duck, and I rode right over it. Scared the tar out of my mom. Scared more than just the tar out of me when I when I. I did it. So I'll, I'll water ski over alligators, but I won't skydive. I think that's insane. Who jumps out of an airplane? Like if you offered to pay for me to go skydiving with you, the answer to that would absolutely be no. Now I'll, I'll bungee jump though. In fact, bungee jumping is not even that, that fun to me. I mean, it's all right. Like if you paid for that, I'd do it. Maybe if we were all going to be around it. I don't know if I'd make a special day out of it, but I wouldn't do scuba. Like somehow the, the, the idea of me being really deep underwater like that, not being able, and how dark it is, that's terrifying to me. Like I've had nightmares about it. I'm also afraid of heights, but I don't mind hiking. In fact, I've climbed uh, five of the, what, 52 14ers in Colorado, the highest mountains. Or there's like 52 different mountains in Colorado that are 14,000 feet or higher. And I've, and I've climbed five of those. Um, but I still don't like heights. I mean, if a ladder is too tall, I get creeped out, but I'll climb a 14,000. Like I don't, doesn't make a lot of sense. When I was home for spring break, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, I was hanging out with a friend of mine from high school named Daryl, who uh, we were just going to uh, ride in his Jeep. And we were in Morrison, Colorado, which is a town just barely into the foothills of, of Denver. You can Google it if you want, Morrison, Colorado, and you'll see that there's a stream that runs, um, runs along the main street there. And then it goes up into the foothills and farther up into the mountains, and it gets its water from the snowmelt. The water in most places is two to four feet deep. And this, this, the, the stream is probably 10 to 15 feet wide, not very wide, but it runs really fast. Uh, and there's a few waterfalls along the way. And there's this one particular waterfall not too far away from Morrison that's about eight to 10 feet deep. And the, the, the water, the pool of water just at the bottom of that waterfall, because of the amount of water and the speed at which the water has been coming over that waterfall for who knows how many centuries has has just dug out this 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 eight uh, 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 huge huge pool I was gonna say eight but it's not it, it's about 15 feet deep and just on the other side of this pool of water is a is a cliff and it's like a sheer face cliff. it's like straight up and we're we're in Daryl's Jeep and we pull off the side of the road in front of it and we can see people that are just jumping from the top of the cliff all the way into the bottom of the pool and it looks like they're gonna die because you can see how shallow the stream is except for the bottom of this waterfall. But from where we're at in the car, you can't see that. And it just looks like they're all gonna die. And then girl goes, hey, Daryl goes, hey, you guys wanna go, you wanna do this? And I, and I said yes for two reasons. One, I didn't think, one, I didn't wanna look like a baby. Two, I didn't think we were gonna do it right then. I think we were, I thought we were gonna come back. And I was gonna find an excuse not to be able to come back with everybody. Uh, so I said, yeah, sure. And you know, everybody in the, in the Jeep was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And Daryl just turned off the Jeep and everybody started getting out fully clothed. None of us had a towel. I was wearing shorts, but they weren't swimming trunks. Uh, but nobody had a towel. Like I wasn't really prepared for this. And now I've just gotten myself in this, in this huge problem. Uh, I swim across the, the pool, the, you know, 15 feet pool, you know, 10 to 15 feet across and then climb up like everybody else. And it takes about 15 minutes to get to the top. And when you're standing at the top, looking down at that little pool of water, it's about, like I said, 10 to 15 feet across and about 15 feet deep. It looks like a Dixie cup from that high. 
It's, it's terrifying. It looks like if you jump too hard, you would actually clear the pool of water and land on the rocks and die. Now, nobody we'd seen jump off the rocks had even gotten close to the other side. It just gave that appearance, which made it even more terrifying to me. So being the nice guy that I am, I keep letting people who are behind me go in front of me. You know, I'm just, I serve, right? That's what I do. I, I serve other people. I'm, I'm so kind. Finally, everybody's like, Sean, you're going to have to do this at some point. And now nobody's passing me anymore. They're all waiting on me to go. So now I have to. Now I look back at, at how to get back down and I'm realizing it actually might be more dangerous to go down the path because it was so steep than it would be just to go off. But if I go off, I feel like there's going to be certain death. So you kind of stand there on the edge and maybe you've experienced something like this with a, a high dive the first time you went off the high dive. When you're standing there and you're, you're looking over the edge and you're trying to get up the guts to do this and maybe you bounced a few times. But at some point, like you, you might have even lifted your leg up and your foot kind of hovered over the drop off. But there's a point in which you cross a line. And once you cross that line, there's no going back. Maybe you leaned out over it, but you hadn't crossed that line because you could still come back on the diving board. That's the same experience I had with this cliff. When you're at the top and you're, you're looking down and you're, 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 there's a, I don't know where this line starts and where it ends, but you definitely know when you've crossed it. And you realize I'm either going to live or die but one thing's for sure is I can't go back to where I just was. Like that moment is completely gone. And it's that idea, that line that we cross. Like there's a, a line that when you cross and when you cross that line, things are forever going to be different. And that happened. There is a line that has been drawn in human history where everything before it is viewed one way and everything after it is viewed a completely different way especially if you're a religious person. But even if you're not religious, you would probably agree that all peoples, right? Like all civilization in the entire world has been touched in some way by the things that happened in the life of one person, Jesus. In fact, all of human history is divided between the things that happened before his life and the things that happened after his death. We have B.C. for before Christ. We have A.D. for after his death. And I know the political way, correct way of the non-religious way, or the secular way of saying that now is B.C.E. and C.E. for before common era and common era. But even still, with the B.C.E., that's everything that happened before the time of Jesus. And the common common era is everything that happened after Jesus, like human history itself is divided between the things that happened before him and the things that happened after him. And the narrative of the Bible, both the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, I don't mean old as irrelevant. I mean old as in first, the first covenant versus the second covenant are divided around the life of Jesus. But there's been lines that have been drawn between us and God from the very first few pages of the Bible. In fact, the Torah opens up. The Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, it's the first five books of the Bible. The Torah opens up at the very beginning with an explanation of how we got here and what our purpose is. It also tells us where evil comes from and what God has done about it. Now, that's not the purpose of the teaching today, so we're not going to go over that. That's a sermon for another time. But it does tell us that there's a good God who creates good people for a good world for his good pleasure, for their good enjoyment, 
right? God says, this is all the stuff that is good. This is, this is me, and this is the way that I want it. And this is who you are to be with me. And this is what it's supposed to feel like between you two, each other, and, and you two together with, with me even, and me individually with you guys. And then what God does in the first few pages of the Bible, he draws a line and he says, on this side is good and on that side is bad. On this side is holiness. On that side is, is, is evil. On this side is peace. On that side is chaos. On this side is justice. On that side is, is injustice. And then he, he asked them not to cross the line. But then they do. And he had told them, on the day that you cross the line, you'll die. Like there's physical and spiritual death on the other side of that line. And Adam and Eve cross that line. And sure enough, they know evil. They know chaos. They know injustice, right? They know, they know, they know bad. Like they, they're in this place and there's now a line divided, dividing them from God that they have crossed. And there's no going back to where they were before. It's too late. They already left the cliff, right? They, they jumped off the board. This is, this is where they're at. And God's got to decide what justice is going to look like because he already told them that because he's good, he is also just. But he's also 100% love. So what does God do with this desire for love and his demand for holiness and, and justice? Adam and Eve were naked and they had made for themselves a covering for their, for their nakedness out of leaves. And God said, your covering isn't acceptable. Like you can't do enough to cover the consequences of your sin. So the Bible says that God created for them clothing made from the skin of a goat, which meant that what happened to the goat? The goat died, right? Like you take the skin off of an animal, that animal dies. And what happened is, is that goat became a temporary bridge over the line that Adam and Eve have crossed in their relationship with God. It was a temporary bridge that God had built. And then he sits them down and he tells them what's going to happen. God says in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, I will cause hostility between you and the woman to the snake and the woman. And then to Satan, who was behind this action, he says in between your offspring, he says to Satan and her offspring, I will strike your head, still talking to Satan now, and you will strike his, his heel. There's a few things I notice in this first verse. One is, is that it uses a, a phrase that's only used here. It's never used anywhere else in the Bible, and that is her offspring. Because every child in the entire Hebrew scriptures and all of the Tanakh are referred to as the offspring of their father. They're referred to as the son of, and the son of, and the son of, and they were the descendants of, and it would name their fathers, their fathers, their fathers, their fathers. In every single case, with the exception of one, there's only one place in the entire Bible where a baby is referred to as the offspring of a woman only. And right here in Genesis chapter three, God hints that someday there would be a baby born to a woman only without the participation of a man, and that this baby would be a he. It would be a baby boy, and that this boy would be the bridge that would permanently span the gap or cross the line that existed between good and evil, between righteousness and sinfulness. 
And he says that what happens to build this bridge isn't just the birth of this baby boy, but that you, Satan, will bruise his heel. Heel is the symbol of this humanity in his flesh. He said, you'll kill him, but in killing him, he will crush your head or take away your authority or remove the effects or overcome the authority of sin and evil in the world. God's just describing the bridge. What God had just demonstrated for them temporarily with this goat, he said, someday there will be a baby boy that is born who will die and in his death will permanently undo the effects of sin, evil, and injustice in the world. Now, this isn't the first bridge that you see in the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, every time somebody wanted to bridge bridge that line that separated them from God, they had to come with the offering of a lamb that didn't have a blemish. There was no bruising or spots or, or defects in this lamb at all. And they would offer the life of that lamb as a sacrifice to atone for what they had done, to redeem them from the evil that they had committed against a holy and righteous God and the sins that they'd committed against each other to temporarily establish a relationship or to be reconciled to God. There's a really famous example of this in the Passover story. Uh, there's a generation, in fact, several generations of Jews that had been born into slavery. They'd never known freedom. They were born as slaves, lived as slaves, died as slaves. And over the course of time, they cry out to God to be delivered from their their captivity from their slavery. And for the rest of the Jewish scriptures, Egypt is always a metaphor for sin. So they were born into sin. They were held captive by their sin. They called out to God to be delivered from their sin, and God sent them Moses, the one who pointed them to their deliverance. And he told them, God's going to show up, and this was in the 10th plague of Egypt. He said, and the death angel is gonna pass through, and the firstborn son of every family will die. But if you take a lamb, an innocent lamb, a lamb in whom there is no defect, no fault, no spot or blemish, and you sacrifice its life and you collect its blood in a bowl and you take a hyssop branch, dip it into the blood and apply its blood to the doorpost of your house, the death angel will pass over you. The angel would pass over that bridge that they had built because God was now providing this temporary access between them and him for their sins that they had also committed in their lifetime. This was a temporary bridge. It's kind of cool when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the very first time, he says, behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the one who bridges the gap. There's the one who will help you walk over across that line back to God. That's what he says. The ark is another bridge. The, the uh, uh, mankind gets so far away from God that God says, we're going to hit the reset button, but then God provides for them a bridge uh, across that line. And truthfully, the line still exists. That line exists for you, and it exists for me. Isaiah, one of the most famous prophets of all of the Jewish prophets, said this in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. He said, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he's turned away and will not listen anymore. So you and I have probably both been at places in our life where we felt like God wasn't there for us. You've prayed, you've talked to God, and it just doesn't feel like he's anywhere there at all. And the Bible says it's our sins that separate us from God. It's not that God looks at you and he says, 
you can't be loved by me. What he says is, you're on that side of the line. And if I'm going to remain pure and holy, I can't go there. Like, I can't stand on your side in relationship with you and still be holy because now I have crossed that line. Neither can you cross that line from your side of sin and evil and rebellion and disobedience towards me and your selfishness towards others and be on this side and be holy and without fault and blame because of the things that you've done. It's your sins that have drawn the line between you and God, and you and I both sinned. You've broken the commandments probably as much, right, as I have. Maybe not as much as I have. I, I mean, it doesn't matter. The point is, we've both broken the commandments. We've both been selfish toward our fellow man. We've both voluntarily chosen to stay on this side of the line. Uh, listen to what Romans has to say about that line, Romans chapter five, verse 12. When Adam sinned, it says, sin entered into the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. So according to Romans chapter five, it implies that anyone who has a who is a descendant of Adam, in Adam, there's sin. And so because of Adam, there's death. So everyone who has a human father is, like Israel, born into Egypt. All of us are born on this side of the line. In fact, the only way any human being could ever be born into the world physically and not be born automatically on this side is if they did, is if they did not have a father in the likeness of Adam, who's the only person who's ever been born without a human father. That would be Jesus. Jesus is the only one born physically into the world outside of Adam and Eve, born on that side of the line. So you and I spend our lives trying to be good enough to bridge that gap and to reach across that line. But the truth is we can't reach there from here because we'd have to touch down on that side. So what God does is he shows up in the person of Jesus on that side already and then he reaches across. The Bible says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. So he, like Adam, was on both sides of the line. Adam on this side, Adam and Eve both, Adam and Eve on this side. Jesus born on that side, right? And then reaches across to this side also. Now there's no real argument here when it says that all of us have sinned, so all of us die, because we know that everybody dies. And we know that everybody sins. But that brings us to the first of only two points from the teaching today, and that's this. That all of us are born into captivity. Like the Jews born into slavery in Egypt, we're born slaves to our sin. We're born on that side of the line. And we live our lives as slaves to sin. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 8, verse 34, when Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a what to sin? We are slaves to sin. We can't help it. We're born to dysfunction. We're born to selfishness. We're born lying. We're born hurting. We're born prideful. We're born with greed. We're born with fear. We're born with sexual sin. We're born destined towards insecurity. We've all got our own prisons, and we're born to them. But listen to what Romans chapter 5 goes on to say in verse 15. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin when he went over to that side of the line and God's gracious gift from this side of the line. 
For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace in his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, And the result of God's gracious gift, Jesus Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas every year, and the result of God's gracious gift is a very different result from the result of that one man's sin. So God giving us Jesus, the one who is holy, pure, and spotless, without sin to be the bridge, brings a different result to everybody on that side of the line than the result that we get from our human ancestor, Adam, who put us on this side of the line. Completely different results. Uh, but for Adam's sin leads to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Even though we are guilty of many sins, and you and I are both guilty of many sins, but according to this passage of scripture, I can be made right with God because of the bridge that God built when Jesus showed up. Verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over everybody born on this side. Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this other man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin condemns, brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness, taking on the condemnation of everybody on this side, on himself, this brings a righteousness, a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, that's Adam. But because one other person obeyed God, that's Jesus, many would be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all the people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the bridge. It's Jesus giving us the opportunity for eternal life, giving us a way to go from that side to this side. See, I think there's some people that think that Jesus came to start a new religion. Uh, my grandmother is Jewish. I've mentioned this before. And I think she was raised with the understanding that Jesus is somehow different. But Jesus was raised as a very conservative, observant Jew under the law. That's what the scriptures teach. But Jesus didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets at all. Jesus came to finish what God started in the garden when he said someday a baby boy would be born as an offspring to a woman only who would die and in his death crush the authority of sin and evil in the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is a really famous passage of scripture because it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. You probably heard of it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, this is Jesus talking and he says this, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. That's the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. He said, no, I came to accomplish their purpose. He said, everything that happened before me was leading up to this moment, and I didn't come to erase all of that. I came to fulfill it. What Jesus is saying is, I came to be the bridge from this side to that side. I came to fulfill the promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I showed up in human history so that those of you on that side could be redeemed, your sin could be atoned for, paid off, the debt removed, so that you could have a relationship with God again. See, we thought the secret to getting right with God was figuring out how to become a better person. 
Isn't that what you were taught? That good people go to heaven. So here we are on this side, being born into slavery, thinking that if I can be a good enough slave, I won't be a slave anymore, right? Can you imagine the Jews back in Egypt? If I'm a good enough slave, I'll be Egyptian. There was nothing they were ever going to do to become Egyptian because they were born Jews on this side of the line. And Romans chapter three, verse 19 unpacks this. It says, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given, but its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. So the law that God gave Moses for the Jews, according to Romans, wasn't, uh, its purpose wasn't to make them not sinful because they had already sinned, they were already born on that side of the line. It was to make sure that they had no excuses for why they were, they couldn't say on this side of the line that it's not my fault, it's Adam's fault. So the law was given so that I would recognize that I have purposefully on my own chosen to be over here. So the law is God's standard, a picture of what God says, this is what it looks like to be holy and righteous and perfect. And I look at that and I recognize, bro, I am not that guy. And that's exactly what Romans, uh, Paul says in Romans. He says its purpose is to keep you from having an excuse and to show the entire world that they are guilty before God. And then he goes on to give some really bad news. Verse 20 says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So according to the actual Bible, nobody can get from this side to that side by being a better version of themselves. Paul said the law just leads to guilt and shame. And truthfully, me telling you what you ought to be doing sexually doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It makes us feel bad. Me telling you what you ought to do with your money, what you ought to do with forgiveness, who you ought to forgive, how you ought to put the needs of other people in front of us. Like these things don't make us better. Like knowing all of the right things that I should be doing <laughs> doesn't help me. <laughs> all it does is point out how broken and dysfunctional I already am. And the Bible says that's actually kind of its purpose. Like God gave us the rules so that we would know I break them and I can't stop breaking them. And that brings me to the second of only two points today, and that's this, that Jesus sets captivity captives free. Romans 3 verse 21 says, but now God has shown us the way to be made right with him. God is now showing us the way to go from this side to that side. Yet now God has shown us the way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, which is great because I have such a hard time with that anyway, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22, we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Like Jews are made right with God the same way Christians are made right with God that are made right the same way Muslims are made right with God. The only way to be made right with God is by walking across the only permanent bridge that God built across that line. The bridge that started on this side with Jesus that reached over into our side. So Jew and Gentile and Muslim and atheist and agnostic and Taoist and Hindu, all of us are made right with God the exact same way by placing our faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus came to set us free from our sin, from the prison of our unmet expectations, our personal failures, our broken promises, our personal injuries, and our emotional baggage. 
So I think the next question is, well, then since Jesus is going to forgive me for everything I do over here, can I still keep doing all this stuff over here? Romans 6 verse 15 asks that question and gives us the answer. It says, well, then, since God's grace has set me free as a captive from the law and the guilt and shame that comes with that, and the feeling bad about myself and the self-pity and the self-loathing and all the other stuff, does that mean we can keep on behaving inappropriately over here? Of course not. He says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So here's the thing. Each of us struggle with our own personal prisons. And our prison is made of the things that we prioritize over God. Like he says, you are going to be the slave to the thing that you chase. So you and I, when we get in sideways in our life, you chase something. Like there's something that you chase that makes you feel better about yourself. And what Paul says is the thing that you chase is the thing that you're enslaved by. The thing that we run to when we need to escape actually becomes the thing that enslaves us and holds us captive. The thing you love more than God often becomes your master and keeps you imprisoned. That's what Paul says. Jesus meets a few people like this in the, in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a guy who's a rich young ruler. He's incredibly wealthy. And to the rich young ruler, Jesus says, sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. Then you can come and follow me. But the guy couldn't do that because he was enslaved by the love of his money. And when he had to choose between staying on this side and keeping his money or getting free from the consequences of sin to be reconciled to God without his money, he chose to stay in Egypt, is what he did. The Bible says that he walked away very sorrowful because he was very rich. He had a very comfortable prison cell that he would not walk out of. The Apostle Paul had a prison of his own making. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, Paul explains it or describes it. Tell me if you can guess what his, what his prison was. He said, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He goes on to say, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. What do you think his prison was? His prison was his self-righteous pride, his piety, and his arrogance. But listen to what Paul says in the very next two verses. In verse 7, he says, I once thought those things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing that Christ Jesus is my Lord and has rescued me. For his sake, the sake of Jesus, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. The King James Version here says dung. And the only reason why I know that because as a little kid growing up in a very conservative church, there's a few words that preachers would read in the Bible in the King James that would make me laugh. Dung was one of them. Uh, he says, but I count all of those things as dung, as garbage. Why? Because I've gained Jesus. In letting go of my prison on this side, I have found the holiness, the righteousness, the peace, the justice, the goodness, the goodness of being with God. That's what he said. What made the difference? Recognizing that there was a line between himself and God. What made the difference? Him seeing that Jesus was the bridge 
that allowed him to walk across, and he went all in as a devoted follower of Jesus. What Paul did was he got to the edge of the cliff, to the edge of the diving board, and he jumped. There's another guy named Zacchaeus. He was a hated tax collector, and he didn't collect taxes to build more roads and bridges and fund public education for everybody and, and to, give, to give services to poor and blighted communities. Nope. He took taxes to fund their oppressors, to give money to the Roman juggernaut, which had murdered and killed uh, their families. I don't know. Is there a difference between murder and kill? I don't know. Uh, Zacchaeus was a hated tax collector. Uh, Luke said that he was very rich. Uh, he's the guy who has everything but no one. You know what I mean? That's Zacchaeus. Jesus picks him out of the crowd above everybody else in the city of Jericho. He's the one that he spends time with. And they have conversations that night. The Bible doesn't go into any detail about the conversation that Jesus has when he goes over to Zacchaeus' house. But at some point during the night, Zacchaeus is given the opportunity to cross that line. He sees Jesus as the bridge. And then he says in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before Jesus and he said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, which he had, I will give them back four times as much as what I took. How did Jesus respond? Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. What had made him a true son of Abraham? It wasn't that he bought his way into heaven. What he had done was is he had let go of the thing that had held him captive in prison. That's what he did. Like that's why Jesus came. The truth is every one of us are born captives to sin. It's just the sin that we're held captive by is different. Like you have a sin that holds you captive. I don't know what that is. Is it, is it greed? Is it lust? Is it hate? Is it an unforgiving spirit? Is it a self-loathing pity that might even have its roots in pride? Right? Like it... Like you have a prison. I, I have one that I'm comfortable with. I'm, I'm born in this side. And what I've done is I've created around me my favorite version of sin. And this is what keeps me comfortable. And truthfully, this is also the thing that keeps me on this side of the line. And I've got to at some point be willing to step out of my prison cell and walk across that bridge of Jesus, letting go of everything that I identified with before Jesus. At some point, every single one of us need to go from B.C. to A.D. Every one of us have a before Christ. But all of us need an after death, an after, an after Christ. The entire Bible is a rescue mission. Mankind draws a line between himself and his creator, and the creator builds a bridge over that line. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. God delivered the concrete and steel needed to bridge the gap between us and himself on that first Christmas. You, like me, have your own prison. There are things that we have created in our pursuit of meaning, value, purpose, escape, and self-medication. These things have become our prison and have held us captive. They threaten to keep us on the other side of the line from God. And I'm wondering what your personal prison is made of? Is it anger or hate, self-loathing pity, 
greed, pride, lust, porn, approval and acceptance of other people, addiction, regret, pain or hurt, loneliness, depression, worry, and fear. I don't know what your prison is, but I do know why Jesus came and it was to set the captives free. Maybe you have everything and no one. Maybe you've been scrambling up the ladder so long that you never stopped to check to see if the ladder was leaned against the right wall. And you need to come down and put the ladder on a different wall. No one here is too far gone. God is a faithful bridge builder and he's invited you to cross over today. And I'm gonna ask everybody if you would to bow your head with me and we'll pray. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful that you don't leave us on the other side of the line, that you've intended every one of us to experience an AD, not just be stuck in our BC. God, on this side of Jesus, we, we create worlds that try to make us feel better about the things that we struggle with on the inside. And God, we, we make pets out of our sin. There's certain ones of them that define us, but God, all of our sin keeps us separated from you. Not because you don't love us, but because we don't love you more than our jail cells, more than what holds us captive. And if that's you, then maybe your prayer is, God, I'm ready to let my sin go. Can you make that your prayer? God, I want to go all in with you. I want to, like Paul, like Zacchaeus, like I, I want to let my past stay in my past. I'm willing to change my identity around who you are, not the things that I've done and got stuck doing. God, forgive me for sinning against you and against others. Help me to follow you with the rest of my life. Jesus, I am all in. Save me from this side of the line and bring me over to your side. Can you make that your prayer? If you've already prayed that at some point, you've gone from BC to AD. Truthfully, Paul says there are some of us on this side of the line who still crave things on that side of the line. And maybe you're spending a little bit too much, well, any time on the other side of the line is too much time. Maybe you're convicted by a certain amount of sin that you've allowed back into your life again. So as a child of God, your prayer is, God, I'm sorry for having been set free, craving my handcuffs to sin again. I don't want to be in my cell any longer. God, set me free from the sin that so easily trips me up. Set me free from it and let me follow you. With a clear conscience and a clean heart, God, that's what I'm asking for. Can you make that your prayer? God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving our hearts as you intend. In Jesus' name, we all pray and say together, amen.